Welcome to the Green Room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco. This is Wednesday, February 9th in 2011. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, and I'm so happy to be here with you for this second of our Points of View program in San Francisco Ballet's 78th repertory season. Our Points of View lecture series and the Meet the Artist interviews held in the Opera House before programs and other educational programs are all produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil and administered by Cecilia Beam, who is the Adult Education Coordinator. As you know, these programs are recorded and put up on the website as podcasts. I really uh, encourage you to go to our website, and which is sfballet.org. <clears throat> Excuse me. And look for these interviews. Look for the Meet the Artist interviews. Look for the Spotlight Dancer of the Month. Lots of wonderful, wonderful uh, things on the website and more all the time. Something I want to call your attention to is Studio 455, which is a blog. And the contributors include the dancers, the staff, volunteers. It's uh, really very informative and very entertaining. So, as always, it's my pleasure to welcome those of you who are here at the Green Room. Those of you who are newcomers, welcome. I hope you'll enjoy this and add it to your list of regular things to do. And welcome to those who are listening to this as a podcast. This evening's program hands us the perfect opportunity to focus on one of the essential elements of our art, and that is the relationship between the dance and the music. After I set up a bit of context, we'll enjoy a conversation about that relationship with my two guests, one from each side of the footlights. To start with, a little context and background about Symphonic Variations, which is the program opener. It was created by Sir Frederick Ashton, the great giant of 20th century English ballet, in 1946. He credits seeing Anna Pavlova with inspiring his passion for dance, though he only began to study at the age of 20. His early dancing years included experience with Music Hall, which is much like the American vaudeville. His first professional job was in Paris, and that was with the modern dance company of Ida Rubinstein. And there he also worked with Bronislava Nijinska, who was the sister of Václav Nijinsky. Back in London, he joined forces with Marie Rambert, a major force in early English ballet, who mentored him, encouraged his first choreographic efforts. His work caught the eye of Ninette de Valois, who was the other major force in English ballet. She invited him to create for her young company, the Sadler's Wells Ballet, later to become the Royal Ballet of England. There, we credit him for producing the works that define the uniquely English style. He was inspired by the charismatic young dancer Margot Fontaine, 
And their relationship is one of the great examples of symbiotic artistic creation because the roles that he created for her established her career. Ashton's body of work spans a remarkable breadth of style. Many of his pieces grew out of the music hall influence. Some of us are familiar with La Female Gardée. One of my favorites is The Tales of Beatrix Potter. That was originally done for film and then later restaged for theater. Unlike Balanchine, with whom he's paired during this program, a large number of his works have character and story, or at least a setting. But he created some that we would call abstract or plotless, and Symphonic Variations is probably the standout. He served as the director of the Royal Ballet of England from 1963 to 1970. He was knighted, so we know him as Sir Frederick Ashton. In 1977, he accepted the Order of Merit, which is the most distinguished civil recognition that can be bestowed upon an English subject. In the great theatrical tradition, he continued to perform until close to his death in 1988. Um, in roles including the ugly steps, one of the ugly stepsisters in Cinderella, and Mrs. Tiggywinkle in the Tales of Beatrix Potter. I've heard this succinct description of the English style I've alluded to. Lyrical delicacies wedded to precision of detail while sparkling with its own intricate bravura. We'll find out if that's something that our guests agree with. The, that description completely covers symphonic variations. In it, we see a work of pure dance inspired by the music. This is not a story or an idea accompanied by music. The movement arises directly from the choreographer's response to and his intimate knowledge of this piece of music, which is the Symphonic Variations by César Franck. And now a few images from this season's production. With this exception, which is from a previous iteration of our companies producing the ballet. And it's worth noting in this picture a newly promoted soloist, Courtney Elizabeth on the left, T. Telemetz, Sarah Van Patten, and on the right, a core dancer, Kimberly Braylock, who is, I guess we could say, one of those to watch since she was um, cast in a work as exposed as this one. Soloist Isaac Hernandez. And I think, I hope you've seen in these images that so much of this work is very sculptural. The images hold in your mind as the music moves on and the dance moves on. The centerpiece of the program is Raku. Just a show of hands, who's already seen it? Okay, so a little, about half. Those of you who've seen it, just keep breathing. Um, those of you who have not seen it, you have a treat in store. This is the extraordinary new work created by resident choreographer Yuri Posikov to a commissioned score 
by Shinji Eshima, who happens to be a member of our own San Francisco Ballet Orchestra. Yuri has taken an actual event of the mid-20th century, the burning of Kyoto's Golden Pavilion in 1950, and he's created a work of dance theater in which he presents the essence of the story rather than a literal depiction. The cast is small, two lovers, a monk, and four warriors. The warriors function very much as Greek chorus to the action. The set is stunningly spare, modular units, and all the effect is achieved through lighting and very inventive projections. The score is for a full orchestra without the addition of any traditional Japanese instruments. And yet, to my Western ear, conveys a very Japanese essence. In trying to describe it, I'm going to quote the program notes written by Cheryl Osola. Posakoff is more interested in tone aesthetics, and visual inventiveness than in reenacting history. And I give high marks to visual reinventiveness, or visual inventiveness. Pictures, as you can see the projections in the back, this is Yuan Yuan Tan and Damien Smith. The four men who are both the warriors and the Greek chorus commenting on the action. And the monk, played by Pascal Molat in one cast. Obviously, there are moments of high drama and, repeat, visually stunning. And then the program concludes on a high note uh, with Balanchine's Symphony in C to the wonderful music of Georges Bizet, written when he was only 17 years old. This ballet was created in 1947 For the Paris Opera, I'm going to um, presume that George Balanchine needs no introduction. Um, He created this specifically to showcase its four top ballerinas, the the Paris Opera's four top ballerinas. And each movement features a ballerina with a cavalier, and each demonstrates one of the facets of style. First, the strong academic. Second, the lyrical adagio. Third, the buoyant airborne. And fourth, the sparkling petit allegro. The original title was Le Palais Cristal. It was performed with an elaborate set, and that included an elaborate and heavy chandelier. It was costumed in vivid colors. Each movement was a different color. A different color. Imagine the finale with all those colors. Balanchine revived the ballet just the following year in New York for Ballet Society. And when that company evolved into the New York City Ballet just seven months later, it was on the first night's program. 
<clears throat> now it was dressed in restrained white tutus and the women for, for the women in black tunics for the men and the set and the chandelier were gone. I never miss a chance to throw in factoids that highlight San Francisco's connection to the world wide web of ballet. Lou Christensen who directed San Francisco Ballet from 1951 until 1984, was the original New York version of Fourth Movement Cavalier. And the Third Movement Principal Female was set mostly on his wife, Gisela Cacciolanza. Unfortunately, she ruptured her Achilles tendon during a late rehearsal, needed to be replaced, and she never performed the role. If those of you who know Symphony and C and know the third movement, it is helpful to, to characterize Gisela Cacciolanza. That was her style of dance, which was the petite, the buoyant. Um, anyway, Symphony and C then, as it was renamed, has been a staple in certainly in New York City ballet ever since. It's in the repertoire of countless companies around the world. Entered San Francisco Ballet's repertoire in 1961. In this ballet, Balanchine established what uh, would be a familiar format um, and seen again in Stars and Stripes and Western Symphony. Those of you who've seen those will find that familiar, um, just to name a couple. And the format is the tiered presentation of the dancers, the core, the soloists, and then principals, each movement distinct like its own mini ballet. And then the finale. This is a finale that never fails to bring down the house. <clears throat> the pristine white tutus. Yuan Yuan and Tiet in the lyrical Adagio second act. I think this is the fourth act. Is that the fourth act? Okay, I'm hearing that this is Sofiane and that this is the second act. Okay, I know where it is. One of my favorite pictures. Every season the company revives this piece, they get that picture. And it's just irresistible. Vanessa Sahorium with Jaime Garcia Castillos. And I believe that's first movement. So, I'm ready for conversation. So I'd like to invite Martin West, the music director and principal conductor, and Bruce Sansom, who is the, uh, an assistant to the artistic director and ballet master, to join me. And we're going to... Are these mics these mics on? Yeah. Uh, no. Yes, there they are. Well, welcome. Thank you very much. Martin West and Bruce Sansom. Good evening. Who are both um, literally in between assignments today. Um, this is a full 
period in our lives. We know that. And I'm so grateful that you took this time to come be with us and kind of get closer to the audience. Um, I guess, Martin, I would say most of us really are pretty familiar with the role of the music director. I think what I'd like to talk about, particularly tonight, will be um, that facet of your role that consists of your contribution to planning the repertoire, your your input in planning the repertoire, leading to more of a discussion of um, the whole subject of commissioned works, which Yuri's piece invites us to talk about. And then Bruce has a marvelously intimate relationship with symphonic variations, having performed it and having been acquainted with its choreographer, Sir Frederick Ashton. And as I keep beating this drum, this passing down from generation to generation is the the name of the game. It's the name of our art. So you're an especially valuable link in the chain. Um, Martin, your role in sort of conceiving a season down the road, how do they consult you about music? And then they say, oh, and we want to commission a score. And then, you know, where does your blood pressure go? Um, well, actually, the, the conceiving of the season is mostly done by Helgi. I don't know if Bruce has a much say in it at all. Um, Helgi generally has his, his ideas. Uh, and uh, some, some music directors do have a, a very big say in what goes on. In this company, we don't so much. I don't, I should say. Uh, if anything, I have a, a slight kind of veto Sometimes when Helgi will give the uh, the um, proposed um, things he wants to do, and I'll s- suggest to him that maybe that's not the most sensible thing to do for various reasons. You know, one he might just realize without realizing put in the whole season, uh, program of chamber music or something that just doesn't fit together musically. Uh, but generally, I mean, he actually the great thing about Helgi is his, his extraordinary programming ability and his way of getting uh, different the whole season mapped out for himself you know and it matches everything else as well so in that sense uh, I have a very easy job I can't take any credit for that um, uh, we were just doing next seasons and I just look at the, th- the things that we have to do and uh, you know as always there's huge challenges for the music department to look look into but you know it's part of the fun of the job to uh, make sure they happen if I could just interrupt, I remember um, a couple years ago we were talking, maybe it was just last year, we were talking about The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. and you were mentioning that you had been challenged to go find this instrument. Uh, yeah, well, Mermaid was a great example of uh, where, you, um, just given this score, and of course it exists, so I know that it's possible to do, but uh, we had to find um, all sorts of, I mean, the, 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 the t- instrument you're talking about is the theremin, which is very rarely played now, it's a very early modern instrument, and very few people play it. And certainly very few people can play it to any standard. Uh, we have some in the Bay Area, actually, who play. And I did ask them if they were interested in playing, but um, they, uh, they told me that it was too difficult for them. And in fact, it had been written as a virtuosic part. And so uh, it had been written specifically for this uh, um, theremin player in Europe. And uh, she couldn't do it, so we got her uh, pupil, uh, who is the second best player in the world, apparently. So, uh, she, and we were all very happy that she came, and she was great. And she'll be coming back again this season. To, to do the rest of the run was. so that's what keeps your your work from being boring well yeah I mean that same Mermaid was a great example where we had to find uh, some wine glasses yeah. that fit the pitches that she'd required and we had to find ways of getting into the pit so that, that my players could play them or not or, you know it's just in the right amount of water and all sorts of things it's the <laughs> so um, 
this season, this program, this ballet, Raku, mm. um, Yuri comes to you and says... Well, actually, Shinji came to, to me. I mean, oh. typical Yuri. Uh, Shinji came to me and said, oh, um, did you know that Yuri's asked me to write some music? And I said, no, I didn't. So, uh, <laughs> and I actually said, Yuri, I, Shinji, I didn't even know that you wrote music. Shinji is, uh, is a bass player, double bass player in my orchestra. He's been a member of the orchestra for, oh, for nearly 30 years uh, and uh, very well light and established member of the orchestra and uh, like a lot of my fantastic musicians they all have other strings to their bow um, and he likes writing music and uh, my understanding is um, well it was not this time, it was later on in the season so around about May, June is when the budgets are finalised and hopefully we get all the music uh, known for the next year and uh, so I asked Yuri what he'd like to do and he came up with a piece of music which is a a beautiful piece of music but, but by Richard Strauss but uh, unfortunately you're not allowed to choreograph to it. The, the, the people who own the rights to it don't allow you to do choreographic, new choreography to it. There are some ex- existing choreographies. So Yuri had set his heart on this, and uh, he was very upset when, he, when I had to tell him that he wasn't allowed to do it. And so I think uh, he was probably in Jardinier having a drink to, to uh, uh, calm his nerves and, and, and you know, take his sorrows out on the world and uh, he was talking to Shinji who then and they talked about this idea that uh, Yuri had this idea about the story and uh, Shinji said well you know I've written some music how about this and so anyway Shinji came in to my office because I wanted to make sure that you know we weren't just going to I didn't want to commission a work just because he happened to be my bass player. I wanted it to be a good, a good piece of music. I wanted to make sure that, uh, especially so, because you know it's, it's all very well commissioning a work from somebody, and if you don't know them, if you don't like it, it's all done and dusted and it's all forgotten about. But you know, you really want this is going to last uh, in our repertoire, and the memories of it are going to last within our orchestra. So I wanted to make sure it was very good. And, so Shinji came along, and with, a, with a, just a few samples of, of things, a few sketches, nothing complete. And uh, I was blown away by how its simplicity, yet its sophistication. It was, uh, I was, uh, I was go ahead with it. And uh, so he, he wrote the score at breakneck speed, because Yuri had left him no time to do that. And, um, and then Shinji came and said, here's a score, what do you think? You know, please let me know. And so we worked a little bit. I did some little bits of changing, very tiny bits. And when we got to rehearsal, we hear it for the first time in the orchestra. It's all very exciting. It was only, what, two weeks ago that we first heard it. Um, and uh, so, I mean, we know basically what it's going to sound like, but it, we, ne- we never, until you get the full orchestra, you can never really tell. And, and so, we, you know, uh, over the course of three hours, we, I rehearsed it and got it to a certain standard. And, and we, Shinji and I sat down and said, well, you know, I don't think that really worked. Can we change that? So right up till, actually right up to the dress rehearsal, we were just adding and changing a couple of things here and there to make it work. It's a very exciting process, actually, you know. But only small things, you know, but just enough to make it um, just a difference. Just, yeah, well, as perfect as we can, you know. I've often wondered, um, I know we know the, old, the stories of the old 19th century classics, and, for instance, Petipa would um, write his libretto, and he would describe, note by note, bar by bar, I need 32 bars and I need it in a three-quarter time and I need it to be cheerful. And then he would hand it to Minkus or somebody um, and then when he handed it to Tchaikovsky, Wonder of Wonders, he got beautiful music. But um, does a choreographer like Yuri go to his composer and say, I need 
so many minutes, I need so many counts, I need loud, I need soft. I, I think you, you might well say, I need so many minutes. But I don't, certainly not, I, I, as far as I understand, um, uh, Yuri said, you know, I want, you know, the warrior, but I want it to be uneven time. That's all, that was the only thing he needed. And, um, and you know, the, they, they work very closely together on the libretto, so Shinji knew very closely what the libretto was. And if you, when you, watch, if you see the work, a lot of it's, it almost looks like there's no choreography. You know, there's a lot of times where just the music speaks and the, and the scene it t- itself takes place almost like film music somehow. Like it's, it is choreographed, of course, but it's, uh, it's it's almost like Yuri allows music to speak for itself. He didn't need to impose his own. This is how much I need. In fact, there was one. The only thing I can think of that was changed was uh, from when Yuri first choreographed it. The warriors, uh, having done the whole thing, they looked at the whole run of the ballet. This is back in was it August that he did it, and they thought that maybe it was a bit long. That whole section was a bit long. So then. Uh, they took it, Shinji took it away and rewrote it a bit and made it a bit shorter and of course Yui changed the choreography to match that. Is this the kind of work that can actually have a piano reduction? Uh, yeah, how did it, you, we know, actually how probably did you, can but it doesn't. What, it, did he, what did he choreograph it? How did uh, he choreograph well, we, uh, we, we made um, a terrible synthesized mock-up um, on, a, you know, on a tape. So I mean you can get the bare gist of it but unfortunately there's a big problem with that because uh, when you never hear the orchestral work, the, the things that sound strong and and, uh, and prominent on the on the mock-up just don't exist. And I mean, they're, they're lost in the in the in the orchestra. So, and other things become extremely, you know, um, very prominent. So, I'll just give you an example. So, uh, the, the mock-up, the warriors. So, the the warriors theme is in an uneven seven. Da, 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 da. But it's not very clear on the mock-up. And, and what, what Yuri heard was even seven divided up over two lots of seven. So he goes... I can't do it. I can't do it. So he managed to get seven beats out of, out of two, two lots of three, and, of two lots of two and three. So, um, I mean, it looks great, and it's fine. But when it came to hearing with the orchestra, they were hearing very different things than they were expecting to hear. So we actually reorchestrated a little bit and, and made some things louder that they could latch onto, that they were used to hearing. Um. Fascinating. Um, you sort of um, presented me with a bit of a segue oh, when okay. you said that it was um, almost <coughs> c- cinematic, mm-hmm. that um, it, it just so carries the action and sets the scene and so on. And the segue is to talking about the neoclassic or plotless works that it's in contrast to. And um, I just would love to hear about Raku for the next 20 minutes, but really we do need to talk about the other things, and we also need and to... And Bruce needs to talk yes, as well. <laughs> Bruce, a chance to say a word. Um, but the, um, the thing that strikes me is an excellent... Ill- this is just such an excellent illustration. Um, Sir Frederick Ashton and George Balanchine creating these two works within a year of each other um, took existing pieces of music that are very substantial pieces of music. Maybe the Bizet was not as well known, but um, and visualized them in a sense. At least that is our popular perception. And it's just a whole different thing to a fairly sophisticated, and we are, audience to be watching the theater piece with your, as you put it, sort of cinematic music, and to be watching Symphony in C or Symphonic Variations and watch the movement 
illustrate the music. So, um, I'll come back to you, Martin. But um, give you a time to say a word, Bruce. You mentioned that you actually have performed um, the Bizet, the Symphony in C. So that gives you, besides the fact that you're a very well-educated observer, um, comment about Balanchine's legendary musicality and this whole concept of visualizing the music from the point of view of a dancer. Uh, um, tricky one in a way for me um, Symphony in C is pure dance Um, it's very simple he has used the structure of the music and given every person on the stage something to do that feeds into a certain aspect of the orchestration Um, the one thing that I know about Balanchine is which is sometimes really difficult to to do as a dancer, it sounds so odd, but he's, he starts on the downbeat. <laughs> and plie yeah. one, yeah. up on two, and normally you're up on one. And if you're not um, sort of accustomed to um, Balanchine's works, you will automatically start doing the opposite to that um, and soon discover something is, is wrong. Um, I... I I raise the thing about it being pure dance because I don't take issue with what you say about symphonic variations, but symphonic variations is much more about um, a something without being about a something, whereas um, Symphony in C is a pure celebration of classical ballet, taking into account that it was set on um, Paris Opera and four ballerinas and trying to draw out the facets of their particular styles. Um, you, you are pushed in Symphony in C. Certainly, I danced um, the leads in the first and the fourth movement, the first more often. Um, and it's incredibly musical. You do get a certain amount of play with it. Um, and sometimes I worry that people get too reg- rigid, rigid, sticking to the pulse too much. And you, you've got a little bit of um, stretch and pull in there. But you are working alongside, at times, eight or 16 other dancers. And so you get to those, those moments at the end of each movement where it absolutely has to be crystalline and there's no play there. And it's fun. It, it's, a, it's a challenge to move fast like that all together and to really get the feel of exuberance, certainly from the first and fourth movements that I was in, um, that you're able to feel abandoned and yet contained within the classical idiom. We have um, a couple of video clips. I think we might uh, be just about ready. Let me... Let me chat about it for just a minute. I chose these clips because, um, well, I wanted to make one more comment, which is introductory to these clips, and that is when I performed the Balanchine works, I felt, not just Balanchine, but particularly Balanchine, I learned a lot of music theory from performing the Balanchine works, and there are a number of them, and I'm thinking of Concerto Barocco, which is the double violin, Bach double violin concerto, and I learned to listen to all the lines in the score, because whatever part I was taking might be one of those melodies, or continuals, or accompaniments, or harmonies, or something, but then when I went back and watched it, or even listened to it, 
Suddenly I could hear that line when I hadn't heard it just when I was listening to it as a piece of music. Um, the, piece, the, the bit that I've chosen in uh, Symphony in C is from the finale. And actually there are two bits. So when you're watching the first one, the whole ensemble comes running out on stage. And then Balanchine has done one of the things that he loves to do, which is to take the music, which is really just a kind of a repetitive um, little theme that's building, and he makes the dancers do a figure that's three against four. And actually it's three, three, two. And so he's got a phrase of eight, but he's got this figure that's got three movements. So halfway through, they do eight counts of that. Is it eight? Did we decide it's eight or 16? Okay, well, we'll see. Um, and then the dancers, who are counting like mad, suddenly split down the middle. And although they've been doing the whole thing in unison for the first, let's say, eight, then they do mirror image for the second eight. And if you're on stage right, you have to know that you're going to change sides when you get to the end of eight. And the dancers are, are having to count that just frantically. And yet after you've danced it for a while, you can just hear it. You know when you need to change because you can hear it in the music. It's so much fun. And then another thing that Balanchine does is he takes um, a figure of some kind. In this case, it's, it's a kick, we call a grand battement, and he has each dancer on the stage do that, but they do it at a different place in the phrase, and he just keeps repeating that. It's so simple as an idea, but when you've got, how many dancers are on stage? 40-something, right. I think. It's just, it's, that, it's just stunning to the effect that he gets, and it sounds so mathematical when we're talking about it. And yet, Balanchine's genius is to make it just this visual feast. So, okay, we're ready for that clip. So did you catch that? Uh, and here's the Batmans. Sorry, you don't get to see the whole thing. You have to go to the ballet to see the whole thing. <laughs> but just that, the, the way he's taken each part of the stage made him do something that then it just all sort of knits together. But man, if you watch one particular movement, you can hear that in the music. It, I'll just go ahead, quickly go in. It gets fun, especially for the ladies, when um, you get someone who does first movement principal lady, fourth movement principal lady, on opposite sides of the stage, um, or first and third, or is a demi-soloist 
in one of the pieces and a principle in another or a demi in one and a core in another and the ability to retain all of that and know exactly where you are considering that you might be on count one, two, three or four doing the same step but in a, on a different part of the stage. That's when it gets really fun. <laughs> That's when you see the whites of their eyes. Yeah. Martin, when you're conducting... Um, the the Balanchine works and the other I know Helgi does a lot of pure dance works. Do you have a particular response as a as a conductor that's different from conducting either the very dramatic ones or and there's another category the old war horses the variations the male dancer is doing tricks for fourteen counts and then runs back to the other corner. And then he does tricks for 14 counts and runs back to the first corner. He never runs. It's dramatic. Okay. <laughs> and then he's, then he's going to do a trick, but he's really going to jump extra high. So he tells you to be sure and slow down when he gets to that part. So your response. Well, uh, yeah. Um, you just had to answer the question for me, really. Um, the, the, something like Symphony in C, of course, was never designed to be choreographed so it's I mean the great thing about Balanchine you know, and many of the choreographers is that um, Balanchine especially I've, I've yet to do a Balanchine where, where you have to play it in a way such a way it's against your nature uh, because he as, it's just as you say he in the music is all the steps and if the music's right and so the steps I, I was in New York uh, a couple of years ago uh, working for the School of American Ballet and uh, Susan Pillar, who sets a lot of the balancing works for them, uh, we, I was doing Stars and Stripes. It's, it's one of the you know, more fun ones. And she said that balancing used to st- stand in the corner on stage left, uh, just with his head down, just tapping his foot throughout the show. And someone went up to him and said, Mr. Bal- Mr. B, why aren't you watching the dancing? You know, what, um, he, said, he's because, he said, I'm check- checking the tempo's okay. Because if the tempo's okay, then I know the dancing will be as well. And and it, actually, it's, so in that sense, it's a symbiotic thing. You know, uh, balancing, actually, there is a leeway in balancing to be able to play, you know, here and there, um, which is why he's a great choreographer, which is why it's fun to be the music director of a ballet company because you can play great music, which, you know, over and over again, and the orchestra get better and better at it. And, uh, and then it's also this fantastic, I don't want to say, Realization on the stage, which is not a realization, it's just someone's uh, addition to this great piece of music. Uh, the dramatic works, things like Raku, it, I love doing because I love drama. I mean, I, love, I mean, it's, uh, in some senses, Raku is no different than Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty. The, the drama's there, and the, and the music has drama, which I can bring out. And I love the fact that I can influence the dancers to be more dramatic. You know, if, if, the, if the phrase is becoming dr- dramatic and I see that the dancers are a little head or something of the music, I can, I can make it such a way that I bring them back in, at least I try, you know, so that when the really dra- dramatic moment p- uh, occurs, it happens together and, and therefore the effect is so much better. And, uh, and again, that's a, that's a give and take. Sometimes that can't work and so the drama changes. My drama changes. I think, oh, you know, I can't do that there. I'm going to have to do something else here to make that effect known to the audience and bring out something in the score which isn't necessarily there. But um, I think um, Shinji has been uh, amazed by the amount of drama in his own music, to be honest. The, 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 the main theme that comes so often in, in Raku was uh, his own piece that he'd written already, which is a, 
uh, him to the victims of Hiroshima. And it's very, very simple. And yet it's, it appears three times in the ballet, once as an overture, and once as the pas de deux between the two lovers, and once as the, uh, what would you call it, the... <sighs> the immolation or whatever you call it at the end, you know, uh, well, I don't want to give the game away, but uh, um, um, but it, this, uh, they hit, so you play the music completely different ways each time, and again, you know, it's, it's not something I would have done had I not been privy to the ballet, so it's, it's, uh, that's a kind of a privilege to, to be forced to, to play music in different ways as well, in an in, in a enjoyable way. I have one more Balanchine clip, and then we're going to switch gears to symphonic variations. Um, the Balanchine that I, this one that I chose is the um, opening statement from a work that we'll see down the road, um, Theme and Variations. I can't remember when that's coming up. Uh, Next. Three or four. 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 Program four. Thank you. And it's, um, <laughs> Balanchine is certainly not the, the only choreographer to do this. He may not even be the first, but this is an early example of taking a theme and variations structure in the music and give the dancer a theme, a visual theme, and then when you see the rest of the ballet, you see that theme expanded upon. So I just chose the statement from theme and variations. We can go ahead and run that. Um, And just watch how... The dancer is going to do the simplest, simplest movements. And these are just exercise steps. Already he's he's expanding on the simple movement. That is just so amazing. It's just simple exercise movements. And he builds this unbelievable ballet on top of that. It is. It's, a cl- it's classroom. It's mm-hmm. Just classroom work. It's like conservatoriate or etude. And then it just builds mm-hmm. into something much grander, actually, than either of those two. Mm-hmm. It's, more, it's more sophisticated, mm-hmm. I'd say, in, in the demands. But mm-hmm. what's beautiful is, is that simple opening to then come up with material that comes later. Very taxing ballet. I think Balanchine was the closest for me, closest I've ever known as a choreographer, to actually mirroring what the musician, the composer does, which is take small chunks and then rework them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and Balanchine is another choreographer, choreographer who isn't afraid to repeat something. You know, so if the music's the same, he repeats the same step. And mm-hmm. I find a lot of choreographers are very scared to do that, like they should come up with some new steps. Yeah. But yeah. he illuminates music, and then this is what it was, and this is what it's going to be again. So you don't feel cheated because it was a great step and everything. And, <laughs> and so in theme of variations, of yeah. course, you know, he mirrors the Tchaikovsky. Just he 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 builds the music. He creates he creates it and has highs and lows, and he just follows the follows. The what's there already without trying to add anything he just he just don't know what the word is well <coughs> two symphonic variations this is a work um, 
well, not to put the words in your mouth, you performed it. Um, you're acquainted with the choreographer. Um, you were going to say that this is not pure plotless dance. This is about something. Say more. 1946, um, Sir Frederick Ashton had been in the Royal Air Force during the war for two years, and supposedly this was the piece of music that he listened to time and time and time again. Um, and when he was, um, when he left the Air Force when the war was over and came back to Sadler's Wells Ballet, they were just on the verge of moving in from Sadler's Wells Theatre, which was the equivalent of, say, Yerba Buena, Performing Arts Centre here, to the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, which would be the equivalent move from Yerba Buena to the War Memorial. And Sir Fred had always, um, often done, sort of more vaudeville, story, fun, humorous, full of character ballets. And he had a great ability of using a lot of people and on the confined space of Sadler's Wells, he still got a lot of people on there. And what was a big surprise was when this work opened. It was the first new work commissioned for um, the Royal Opera House when the ballet company moved there. And it's for six people. And he had all that space, and he just had the six of them. Um, they never leave the stage. That's one of the, the key um, sort of noteworthy things to, to notice. It's very rare for dancers to never get a break. They get to stand at the side, but they're standing in position, in shape. They're still part of what you're watching. And I think it always comes as a big shock to dancers. You go off stage, you go into the wings and your recovery time is very, very fast. When you don't have the luxury of being able to bend over, change, twitch your shoe, adjust your leotard or whatever, it, it really changes um, the way you approach your work. But part of what I'm, I wanted to say was about the work itself, it was a response to the end of the war. It was a response to the horrors that everyone had gone through and the deprivations and a sense of a new beginning, a new start for everybody. And I see it as his homage to what people had, what um, the United Kingdom had gone through. They were still on rations and would be for quite a while. Um, and giving them something that wasn't about glory and triumphalism or splendid costumes. The Royal Ballet opened with The Sleeping Beauty, which was to become its signature work wherever it performed it. Um, it was his own response to what everybody had been through. And he had been cycling with Sophie Fedorovich, the designer, and they were cycling in the, in the South Downs, I believe, um, one spring, and they came over a hill, and in front of them were, were all these fields and woodlands just beginning to burst um, with green. And he said, that's what it is. That's what it's about, and that's what it's got to look like. And you saw the photographs. It's that sort of vibrant, vibrant green, um, yellow, bright, bursting colors. 
And it's funny because when you're in the ballet, you actually feel it's a white ballet. Somehow you're unaware of that greenness. And every time I go out front and the curtain goes up, I go, my God, it's green. <laughs> it's, it just, I don't know what it is. When you're on stage, all you get is blinding white light and your white costume and the five others around you. Um, I danced, first of all, I danced the pas de trois. There are, there's a central couple and two side couples. And the, there's a structure that means you see people at different times and some people get to do a solo, some a pas de deux, some a pas de trois. But it's not a ballet about hierarchy, it's about a, a unit. And I, I did the pas de trois and then I did the central couple. And we first learned it, I can't even remember what year it was, but the Royal Ballet hadn't done it for many years. There hadn't been a cast that Sir Fred was happy to see attempt it. And so when we came to learn it, they, they brought everybody out of the woodwork who'd ever danced the role or had ever seen the ballet to come and comment and tell us how to do it. <coughs> oh boy, it was exhausting because everybody remembered something slightly different. <sighs> so this, this passing on is all great so long as there's only one person doing the passing on. <laughs> and even they get into trouble from everyone else who didn't get their say. But it, it was a very, very intense um, experience and also very beneficial. And what was fun was we actually taped the last couple of days, we actually taped... Um, three or four hours in the studio um, just in a ballet studio with Michael Soames um, rehearsing we all knew the work but he was rehearsing it and, and giving greater clarity and understanding to what we were doing and how we were doing and it's not as if it's just a run through he does the first section then he, he focuses in on one person and he makes adjustments and it's a fantastic archive piece to go back to and say that's how it was back in 1984 or 6. Um, and that's my sort of touch point. I remember what it felt like to do it, but I can literally see what we were being asked to do, down to the smallest detail. I want to make sure we get to the clips that we have of it. Um, and you can comment when, you've, when we've seen them, please comment. But um, this is also a theme and variation structure, really. And... As the piece begins, symphonic variations, um, we see a, basically a, a movement statement. And then we see that there are several signature poses, and they're going to recur and recur and recur and be developed. So what we're going to see is the very opening statement, and then we're going to see um, something from much later in the piece when everybody's moving a lot faster. And then you can comment on that. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, the opening is not dissimilar in a sense to the simplicity of theme and variations. It's very basic steps. Um, the big difference is that, in fact, in symphonic variations, there is nothing in it that is technically difficult. It just um, is demanding because of the stamina, the musicality, and the style that's required to get it right. But there's nothing... There's one... There's a solo for um, one of the sidemen, and he has a difficult section of pirouettes. He does it twice. And that's the hardest thing in the ballet, technically. But stamina-wise, it's 17 minutes of, mm -hmm. or however long, depending on... Yeah. What, what are we talking about? 24, 17? Where do you fall on this one? What? How long's the piece? <laughs> I think it's about 18 minutes. 18 isn't it? minutes, yeah. 18. We hear um, two, I hear 19. Uh, the, everybody gets to work hard. It, normally what happens is the curtain um, has fallen is most of the dancers fall on the floor. Because it's just... What I love reminding them is this was 1946. This was 65 years ago. And the cast got through it. <laughs> on solid floors with unheated rooms, grotty dressing rooms. You know, the, the conditions they were working in are so different, and yet they got through it. And the dancers still struggle to get through it because it's just one of those kinds of works. Um, and if you broke it up into pieces, you'd go, so what's the challenge? Yeah. The, the middle section, I just wanted to say, the middle section you saw um, is what we know as question and answer. And... The, the three men are dancing to the orchestra and the two ladies are dancing just to the piano. And you're, if you recognize that when you come see the performance, um, hopefully you'll, you'll just pick that out. And, and Sir Fred did that a lot within the piece. Different people have a different moment, a different orchestra or piano moment that they're working to. I wonder if we could take our last four and a half minutes and let the audience ask us some questions. Um, does anyone have something that's come up as we're talking? And I'll start right here. You mentioned that it's been passed down in symphonic variations. Uh, obviously, you've seen microsomes in the video. Has it ever been notated, either in bench or Robin notation, so that if the video fails to exist, there's a hard copy, so to speak? Uh, can we repeat the question? The question is, has the piece been notated so that it can be um, read from something other than video or passing down? I, I would um, lay a lot of money on it that it banish notation is, is there. I haven't actually seen it. I've never used it myself for that ballet. Um, but I'm pretty certain it will be, yes. But I just add to that, though. Banish notation is great, but it only does the same function that the dots of music do, which gives you the bare bones. And if you were to just just have only that all the tradition that you, is completely lost you know all the all the f fine stuff mm -hmm. that's that style we were talking about is um, 
it's that's impossible to carry beyond, which is why notation is so often used in um, conjunction with video when you don't have the passing down. Um, another question over here. Yeah. Oh, which, which of the Strauss pieces couldn't he have? He couldn't have the four last songs. Uh, this, it's not common, no, but this, for some reason the Strauss family, who own the estate, are uh, a little funny about various pieces being done. Uh, if you remember a couple of a few years ago now, actually, we did um, Spring Rounds, was it called? Uh, Paul Taylor. Uh, and that was up to Strauss. And it, they had to go through some hoops to get... The, the, the rights to that. But there is some choreography of four last songs. I, mean, I think maybe even two or three different versions, but the Strauss family just decided that was enough. Yeah, they, they, right, I think the Ben Stevenson but, version, uh, I think we might have even done it. Yeah, but he actually comes out of, co- he comes out of copyright in about five years' time, so it'll oh. be a free fall then. <laughs> Watch for Strauss then. Um, maybe another one? No, oh, goodness. Oh. Okay. Uh, no, the, well, Repeat, question. yeah. The question is um, about Raku and the ballet mistress Katita Waldo, who has worked frequently with Yuri. Um, did she work with them? Actually, it was Anita. Uh, Anita was a ballet master on that, and she works with Yuri a lot as well. She's done probably most of his ballets, actually. Okay. So. Um, I wish we didn't have to stop, but we do. And I want to thank Bruce Sansom, who is um, a ballet master and assistant to the artistic director, and Martin West, who is our principal conductor and music director, for being with us tonight. Thank you all for being a great audience. And come see us in three weeks. Two or three weeks.